This is Paul Nobles from Eat Perform, and we have kind of a special podcast webinar-ish kind of thing. It's going to be myself and Mike, and what we're going to talk a little bit about. Actually, Mike, if you want to go ahead and say hi to everybody. Hey, what's going on? Sorry, Mike Nelson here. I think most people kind of know you from the podcast at this point, right? There's been enough of those. Yeah, probably helps not to wave on the podcast. <laughs> no, no. There, there, some people, we actually are making a video, but not everybody's going to see that. Um, so basically, this is kind of a, a special treat for the podcast listeners because, you know, and, and it's also a special treat for any of the the quick start members who may or may not have a question now someone's raising their hand sometimes in webinars you can raise your hand and then you know we would bring you onto the webinar that's kind of not how this works we use the chat as questions so if you have any questions we will get to those um, probably within 10 to 15 minutes what we want to basically do is kind of an overview of the basic concepts that we went through uh, for week five and kind of walk through some of the, I would say most of what people have seen up to this point is, has been discussed, you know, but there's always kind of that next level. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that. And actually, I think probably the best way to start this podcast was a conversation that I had with a group coaching cl client. And she was 59 years old today. And, uh, well, she's not 59 years old today. She's 59 years old. It's her birthday. Um, and, it, and it happened just to be a day where she was 59. Um, but one of the things that was real interesting, and she actually used your me search term, Mike, um, <laughs> and she said that she had been watching my PFFL and what she decided was that she was going to attempt to burn 3,000 calories a day and then eat 2,200 calories a day. And so my first thought was, you know, 59-year-old knee replacement, oh my goodness. But she is, you know, an athlete with some size. So her metabolic rate tends to be a little bit higher than some people so she probably normally burns somewhere close to 22 2300 without really doing all that much so probably doesn't take near as much actually she's on the call that's sort of funny um mm -hmm. but what she said was that you know she's been consistently hitting that 3000 calorie and we talked about a few adjustments that she could potentially make to um you know, not get too carried away with the cardio side of things. So the big suggestion that I had to her, because right now what she's doing is working. She's down a couple pounds. She's not really, um, she's not really focused on like a fat loss cycle or anything like that. But she, she, you know, you know, she, she is trying to figure out what works the best. So the solution she came up with is that she has the ability to burn 3,000 calories a day and she feels that she can eat 2,200 calories fairly comfortably and she's seeing things go, you know, in the right direction. To me, that is the best example of Eat to Perform I've ever heard, right? Because 
when Mike and I are talking to you guys, you know, obviously we know that the starvation piece is something that everybody wants to talk about. And you could you could easily say, well, yeah, but she's at 800 calorie deficit. That's not bad, right? I mean, if we're talking about a rest day and having a little bit of a deficit on rest day, my only suggestion to her, because she's been, you know, really good about getting resistance training. I think as we age, it's one of the things that's kind of the hardest to stick to. It's really easy to go out for that walk every day, but it's not as easy to get in some weight training. Um, let's give me your thoughts on that, Mike, because I, I think what happens with the course and what happens with, you know, people that are, you know, new to eat to perform we tend to have a lot of discussion about how little can my clients eat and still work out, right? And here is a level 59er, right? You know, saying, you know what? I'm going to do what you guys actually tell me to do, which is get my athletes, you know, or, or really pursue athleticism and then try to find a point where adherence becomes easier. Thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I think that's that's the way to go. I mean, if you look at a lot of the, the long-term data, I'm trying to remember, uh, I don't remember the study, maybe it was the IOM standard, but I think it was somewhere around for people who were successful losing weight and for maintaining uh, weight loss, it was around, I think, like 300 minutes of exercise a week. And granted, that includes, you know, walking and formal exercise and things like that. But the point being that it's not just a super small amount. You know, and if you look at people who have lost weight and kept it off and have been successful, it's a lifestyle change. They become more active. They do more recreation. Hopefully, most of the time, they lift weights and do some formal exercise. So, so I think from that aspect, I think that's actually uh, really good. You know, she's in a deficit, so it sounds like everything is going fine. Um, the only caveat I, I would add is that I would have her stay where she's at as long as she's making progress probably as long as possible. I you know, agree. She may be able to stay there for several weeks and still continue to make progress. So I would have her just ride that out as long as she possibly can too. I mean, wouldn't you say that that is the, the really the best advice for virtually everyone, you know, is if you are seeing a result doing whatever it is you're doing, keep doing that. Don't get in the way. Yeah. You know, yeah, and yeah, and don't try to get more aggressive, right? Because people get, oh, I'm losing one or two pounds a week. I'm happy. Oh, I wonder if I could lose, you know, three to four pounds a week by being more aggressive. It's like, no, just if you're, you know, if you're doing good, just, you know, the the goal is to do the the minimal amount. Obviously, that is a fair amount of work, and then just ride that out as long as you can, so you're no longer getting the result. And people get way too aggressive, way too early, and they don't really need to a lot of times. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that, that you know, she's actually in comments talking right now, which is kind of interesting. I didn't think that she was going to be here for this. Um, but she, um, she mentioned, you know, that in the past that she had eaten as low as 500 calories, was doing lots yeah. of cardio, really working on you know, there's actually another question that's going to be, um, that's a good question as well. Um, but 
what you really come to is that compromise that everybody has related to what you do and you know why you do it and the amount of food that you eat you know as an example when i first started doing resistance training um which happened to be crossfit but but our crossfit at that time was was very heavy you know and so it 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 probably you know the way that my gym works now there's a lot of 20 25 30 minute wads right it wasn't like that when I first started, and it was a really good fit for me. Um, but I was eating 4,000 calories just to keep up, you know. And, you know, I always talk about within three to four months, I had to go back to 3,000 calories because, like Mike's saying, your body adjusts to this stuff. I think that people get so focused on kind of a rigid system. Just tell me what to do. And it's like yeah. – it's Black like or white. Yeah. And, and – Absolutely, you can, um, you know, you can starve yourself and you will see a result. But like Anita's saying, ultimately she, you know, when she was, you know, eating 500 calories, you know, the weight came back with interest, you know. And so you set up this unsustainable lifestyle. Anastasia's asking kind of an interesting question. I think it really fits our theme for tonight. Um one of the limiting factors to fat loss is the body's ability to access the stored fat. I'm not sure I necessarily agree with that, but I'm going to have Mike take a stab at it first. And for everyone, it is different. Any ways of improving this? Mike, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so it's a good question. So if you want to boil it down very simply, you need to access the fat and then you need to burn it. So the fancy terms for access would be what's called lipolysis. So your body's process of taking the fat, breaking it down into little, basically smaller parts, and then using that actually as a fuel. So burning it for fuel is actually called fatty acid oxidation. It's literally a burning of it as fuel. If you look at a lot of the exercise studies that were done on this, like back in the late 80s, actually early to mid 90s, actually a lot of them were done by the Gatorade Sports Institute. And what they were trying to figure out is for people who want to see fat loss in this process, which one of those is the limiting step? Because you would think that, well, maybe your body just doesn't liberate enough fat, or maybe it just doesn't burn enough fat, or maybe it's a combination of both. And if you look at a whole bunch of studies, even in you know people who have more metabolic issues who are overweight, have maybe type 2 diabetes, other issues, what you generally find is that fat oxidation the body's ability to burn the fat is usually the, by far and away, the rate limiting step, meaning that's the one that's usually holding you back from your results. Vast majority of the time, the body will actually liberate or kick out more fat than it needs. So if you look at the amount of fat circulating around in the bloodstream, it's much higher than it was normally going to be, uh, which is kind of why things like caffeine, so caffeine can increase that process of lipolysis. Um, but other than a slight, you know, energy effect of moving more, maybe a slight decrease in appetite, doesn't seem to do much for fat loss directly. So it's your body's ability to use the fat as a fuel that's the main uh, limiting step. So once again, I'm going to come back to to my level 59er, okay? And one of the things I wanted to talk about, like specific to this question, was 
she's eating 2200 calories and it's you know her pedometer which i believe is a fitbit you know um says 3000 so in theory she's she that that's an estimate and i think that's something that we really yeah. need to have everyone know whether it be people in the certification or whether it be somebody listening to the podcast that really the Fitbit is more or less just trying to estimate what it believes your total daily energy expenditure is for the day based on the calculations that it it that you're buying from Fitbit, right? Yeah, so, I was just looking to see what mine was today, actually. So, <laughs> so, so did she really, you know, um, you know, could she eat three thousand calories? right and then net out to even well what she's saying is is that she's at a slight deficit at 2200 but where i think a lot of people get lost is sort of where their metabolism's at and where i really want to emphasize is what we're talking about is a window right so you're an athlete you're 24 years old your window is huge, okay? Your high 30s, your window's starting to close a little bit, 40s. Now, all of a sudden, as you're older, your window's not, not super big. For our level 59er, okay, she's attempting to increase her window as much as she potentially can while having resistance training for a positive metabolic effect. But that doesn't mean that she's should eat 3,000 calories and, and net out to even, right? All she's really trying to do is create a scenario where she has a level of comfort and a lifestyle that fits for her. Anastasia's question, I think, is addressed by Anita. I hope Anita doesn't um, mind me using her name. I don't think she will. Um, what Anita's doing is she's becoming the best athletic version of Anita. And like Mike is saying, lipolysis is going to be easiest when athleticism tends to be highest. And what I'm referring to is measured in a lab. Measured with a metabolic card, VO2 max, whatever we're doing there, right? Basically, the better athletes tend to mobilize fat better at rest. Yeah, they so, actually tend to burn fat better at rest. Be, that's what I mean. Um, yep. And so, from that perspective, wherever we are as athletes, we always should be working towards getting slightly better. And that's why I'm a big fan of some level of cardio, some level of strength training, and some level of high-intensity work. And whenever you sort of go to one bucket, you should have a reason to, right? I mean, there's certainly going to be occasions where I'm going to be training more for CrossFit because I have a CrossFit competition or I'm going to be training more for powerlifting and just kind of moving that bucket around to fit whatever your needs are. But when you look at the best athletes, you know, the, you know, the people that you would 
you know, you're seeing on television or, you know, playing in the NBA finals. The way that they train, you know, is is really focused on athletic achievement, you know, and specific to their sport. But oftentimes it is very varied, you know, um, and I think that that's really the, the, the emphasis that I want to make to Anastasia's question, you know, because... In terms of accessing stored bodily fat, the whole point of eating at a deficit is to access stored bodily fat. But what we're saying and what the emphasis should be and why we believe that it's part of the equation, first of all, there's tons of people who tell you how to starve, right? I mean, that that's all over the internet that, you know, you can buy that system at any strip mall in America, Okay. What we're saying is, is that if you want all of that stuff to work a lot easier, you work on the athleticism piece most of the time. And Anita being the great example that as you keep your window small, you're going to always struggle from a deficit standpoint. You're always going to struggle mobilizing stored bodily fat. Now, can you talk about the other piece, Mike, where the more restrictive we get, right, we sort of get to this place where in some ways a deficit will make you more nutrient efficient. Um, my argument to people most of the time is that many of us want to exercise at the wrong time. And we want to diet at the wrong time, you know. Um, so January 1st, it's 20 below outside. Everybody wants to go on a diet, but no one wants to go outside and walk around, you know. Um, talk a little bit about why it's so difficult to maintain fat loss after a deficit cycle. And what does the science show related to that? Yeah, so there's a couple of things there. So I agree with your point that in general, you want to have the biggest sort of metabolic engine possible, right? You want the big gas guzzling, you know, V10 engine, right? So it's going to burn a whole lot of, of fuel. But your body is always constantly adapting all the time. You really can't do anything so that it not adapts. Even in advanced disease stages, your body is still adapting. So when you're taking in fewer calories, over time, your body is thinking, uh-oh, I'm programmed for survival no matter what. So over time, I'm going to slowly decrease my metabolic rate. I'm also going to decrease other things that people don't think of, the big one being NEAT, so non-exercise activity thermogenesis. It seems that people are very worried about their metabolic rate, and it does tend to you know, trend down. It doesn't, you know, crash through the floor or do as many horrible things as what people think. Um, but the other thing is that the need or how often you just move around really goes down. What's interesting about that is that it's usually an unconscious thing. So people don't really realize how much less they're actually moving. And that's why I really like the Fitbits. I have a basis. And while step count is not uh, perfect, doesn't take into account, you know, fidgeting and other movements and that kind of thing. But it does give you a pretty good baseline to show where you're at. You know, so if you're averaging, let's say, 
8,000 steps and you do some crazy thing and really dramatically cut back your calories, if you're not conscious of it, you'll probably walk 6,000, 5,000, 4,000, probably something quite a bit less unless you're actively going for a walk and doing things to try to at least keep it at the same level um, that it was at before. And what you find is that this is extremely variable from one patient to the next, from one person to the next, both on how fast that down regulates when you start cutting back and actually how fast that up regulates on the other side. So in the course, I talked about the classic studies from Levine at Mayo, where they overfed people by a thousand calories per day. Some people only gained a couple of pounds. Some people gained a whole ton of weight. And the reason for that was some people were to upregulate this neat as a movement much faster than other people. So it kind of works on both ends of the spectrum and it's very widely variable. So I'd say that's the other thing to watch out for that a lot of people don't take into account. So one of the things that I've been doing, if you haven't been following, you can you know check it out on the blog. I'm on my third week. I actually need to get back to um, updating everybody, but at, at this point, it's the third week and it's kind of boring, right? I mean, I'm pretty much <laughs> been able to stay under 180 um, throughout this process. And when I was done with my performance focused fat loss, I was at 177.8. So, you know, I always allow for a little bit of a bounce back. Um, I, I typically would like to be at like 176 to have like a 176 to 180 bounce back. So my, my window there is kind of small. But I've had no real pro. I've had, you know, I've had days where I've been over 180, but the majority of the time I've been able to kind of address that related to volume and related to other things. But it's so interesting what you just said. First of all, coming out of PFFL, you're in a deficit. Your workouts should suck a little bit, right? I mean, it, you know, the, the basis for Eat to Perform is that we're, Helping you, you know, and I don't think Mike coined this term, but he's, he's, he, you know, he might as well have because he's the one person <laughs> I hear saying it all the time is minimal effective dose, right? And so what you're really trying to do is get a result without too much extremes. And so, you know, when I was in PFFL, my, you know, there's basically three numbers, 2200, 2000, 1800. I never really had to go to 1800. I think I did go to 1800 twice um, out of, you know, what, you know, 60 days. And uh, both days I ended up not sleeping. So I was like, yeah, that's for the birds. Um, so I come out of PFFL. This was, I think, like three or four days ago where, you know, now my workout day calories are, are, 3,000, my average is somewhere in the neighborhood about 27, 2750, something in that nature, somewhere in that neighborhood. But I had a 4,000 calorie burn day, right? And what Mike is saying, and this is what everyone needs to hear, especially the people that have been dieting since you were 14 years old. You are killing your metabolic rate and you are hurting your knee. You're, if you're not sleeping well, okay, if you're sleeping four to five hours a day, you are crushing your knee. And you may think that neat doesn't matter. I'm going to tell you, if you're trying to get to a deficit, or in my case, 
you're trying to maintain weight. And that's what we're really talking about is, you know, I don't think most people really struggle with the deficit part or in Anastasia's question where they struggle with the stored body fat part, right? We can all suck it up and lose 10 pounds, you know. Where we all struggle is what Anita said, where, you know, you were so restrictive for so long, you weren't doing minimal effective dose in a lot of cases, right? So, you know, one of the cool things about Eat Reform is that when you're eating 2,200 calories, even as a male, right? So I'm a, I'm a man, you know, 180 pounds, I'm eating 2,200 calories. It's not great, but it doesn't suck, right? There's a lot of dudes trying to eat 1,500 calories. They've been doing so for six months and wondering why they can't wait, can't lose weight. Well, I know why, because you're just using the same hammer over and over again. But let's say that they eventually figure it out and they're able to lose whatever weight that they want to do. What are they going to do? They're, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to have some wings, they're going to have a beer, and they're probably going to have cheesecake for dessert. And then what are they going to do the next morning? They're going to weigh themselves. Don't weigh yourself in that scenario, you know, because it's never going to work out well. So now all of a sudden, they've got some measure of water retention. They're up eight pounds, and then it's, you know, off the rails time. You know, all the work that you did supposedly is now gone. This is the argument for some level of moderation where you're having longer diet breaks and you're really trying to get to a deficit in a reasonable fashion, right? Then if in my instance, okay, so right now, um, you know, my rest days have been somewhere, you know, some of the lowest ones, actually today might be pretty low. My, today might be 2,300. Um, but most of them have been about 2,500. And like I said, most of my workout days have been 3,000. I'm up in my volume because, you know, I'm starting to train for a couple competitions over the, the weekend or, I mean, over the summer. So that might not be your reality, but I can tell you this, a little bit of what Anita's doing makes a lot of sense for everybody, right? The first question I asked her was, are you hurting? Is, are you dealing with lower back pain? Are you dealing with feet pain? Are you dealing with, you know, things like that? You could certainly overdo that kind of stuff. And if you can, the easiest way to deal with that is some level of elliptical, something of that nature. Otherwise, you have to then make a compromise. And that compromise probably means some level of less food. So you're trying to figure out, okay, how much food can I eat? And then as we're walking out of the process, we're gradually moving that up to back to what normal looks like. The problem is, is that well, I don't think it's a problem. I think it's actually one of the biggest advantages of eat the form. 
when you're eating 2200 calories, you can actually eat things that you enjoy. So then when you come out of a deficit cycle, it's not cheesecake, beer and 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 chicken wings time, right? You can gradually move towards a more caloric way of thinking things. Talk to me a little bit about what happens in the scenario. Obviously, most people, you know, what are we talking about? We're, we're talking about a lot of sodium, more carbs than their body's ready for, right? And so we're going to be talking as it relates to some level of bloating. Does the body store body fat easier in a scenario where somebody's been in a deficit for a long period of time like that? Yeah. Um, it's probably kind of debatable. I would say there's one school thought that says probably yes. And I would generally agree with that. The caveat being exactly what you just said, that process is not going to happen all in one day. Right. So if you, if you go out and have a big meal or whatever, you, like you said, get on the scale the next day and you're up, you know, four or five pounds, you definitely didn't gain four or five pounds in one meal, right? But you have retained a lot more water. Sodium intake is different. You were probably very low in carbohydrates. Usually in general, people tend to eat a lot more carbohydrates. So now you're replacing glycogen. Glycogen pulls a lot of water with it um, into the muscle itself. So glycogen is just stored glucose or sugar. So in those scenarios, yeah, you can see some pretty dramatic changes in a short period of time. But I think the point you made was really good is that if you're doing it on a little bit higher amount of calories, you don't really feel like you're as mentally deprived, which is why I'm not a big fan of, you know, cheat days and refeed, that kind of stuff. I, I get it. I, I, I understand it. But by virtue, that means that the rest of the time you're eating foods that you hate and you kind of hate your life. Right. <laughs> So if you're doing it more moderate, you're doing it at the highest amount, there isn't as much of that need to go bonkers. Okay, you're making a great point there. And I think that, that you know, it sort of addresses the body fat issue because I agree with you that, you know, the chicken wing meal with cheesecake and beer, it didn't add four pounds of fat. But here's what does add four pounds of fat. When you are eating in an overly restricted way, okay? There's only two ways to go. There's the almost masochistic, you know, I'm going to suffer through this and you've painted it yourself into a 1500 calorie corner for the rest of your life and you have a bad relationship with food. Or there's the screw it, I worked really hard, nothing seems to work for me, I'm broken mode. Neither right. of which is true, right? But let's say that you're in broken mode and this is, you know, we've talked about this kind of dieting your way to obesity where you diet so extremely that, you know, and you're not using minimal effective dose, you're just doing whatever it takes. So then all of a sudden, you know, the wheels come off and you know, you see that the scale's up eight pounds and it's a quick return back to not only where you were, but, but even more because your body tends to be a little bit more receptive at that point. You know, so, 
you know, one of the things is kind of interesting coming, you know, I'm talking about this three weeks out of it. When I came out of PFFL, the pictures I was taking, my muscles looked really super flat, right? Yeah. Right now, I mean, you know, <laughs> I have to say, like, I've been kind of gazing in front of the mirror a little bit more than normal because my muscles are full. My, my, my body is more receptive to nutrients. And as I've started to bring in, one of the things I talked about the other day that I think is so, so huge Coming out of PFFL, where, you know, you're eating air pop popcorn and, and fiber and, and, and steak and all these foods, you're really focusing more on kind of whole foods and, and being full. You sort of forget that you have to have some energy density when you start coming out of that stuff. And, you know, as you and I both are, are fans of, of the Targo, but I remembered, oh my goodness, I haven't had the Targo in forever. And I would say, honestly, I mean, I don't get any benefit from saying this to you guys, but as far as I'm concerned, you know, I'm not saying that there aren't other carbohydrates that would be better, but if there's a carbohydrate that loads better than the Targo, you're going to have to show me it because, you know, I just have not seen, you know, something that loads better than that. And what that means is now all of a sudden we're talking about neat, but we're talking about getting better at exercise faster, you know. And so when we're coming out of a deficit cycle, you know, what I remember about the first week was being sore, you know, right now. I'm lifting, you know, weights that I was struggling with three weeks ago, I'm throwing around, you know, yeah. what's the difference? Well, it's energy, it's food, you know, um, and I, I feel like there's a lot of people that kind of play around because they're sort of scared of adding calories. I've gone from basically 2,200 calories to, you know, up to 3,500 calories on some of these days and stayed pretty weight stable in the process. Actually, one of my highest calorie days was one of my lowest days as it relates to weight the next morning. And so I think when we're talking about um, reversing out of a cycle, ape shit's not the goal. Your, your work capacity is just not going to be there, right? You can try... To, to and and I have to say, I think people tend to want cardio to be that piece a little bit more than it can be. My personal impression, you know, is that I can eat much closer to my burn on resistance training days, whereas on my cardio days where, you know, my burns get to be 4,000. I'm not eating 4,000 calories. First of all, like, like it, it sounds like the best thing ever. It, it's awfully inconvenient trying to eat 4,000 calories. Oh, that's, that's a lot of work, man. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so I just want people to kind of know that what we're talking about not only works from the standpoint of it's just easier mentally. But one, 
when you're too restricted, what's going to happen when you see that scale go up five to six pounds? You know, you're going to panic, right? Because you just worked your ass off starving yourself for the last, you know, four to five months in some cases. Most of our deficit cycles tend to be eight to 10 weeks, right? And, you know, usually some level of rinse and repeating makes kind of a lot of sense. Anastasia is once again kind of killing it. Um, Catherine Waters um, was asking a question about Fitbit. She's not purchased one. She said it was a little off topic. It's not a little off topic. I mean, you know, I would say probably uh, Amazon, you know, um, is going to be best and easiest. They deliver it to your door. And usually they're pretty competitive on price. Um, so Anastasia was asking, can you just talk a little bit about how you adjust the macros to match different types of intensities for training for example training lower body use larger muscles thus burning more carbs and training upper body or different speeds jogs runs or rowing um i'm going to take this one real quick and then you take over but sure. uh what i can say is that when i'm doing okay first of all squats are the best <laughs> by far i mean there's just something about squats as a compound movement that allows for, you know, loading of the muscle as long as you're kind of doing it right. If you're trying to load your muscle with, you know, a lot of fiber and fat and stuff like that, that's not going to be super favorable. But if you can really move towards, you know, more carbohydrate approach on that day, what I think you're going to see is not only will your um, will the nutrients load a little bit better, but you'll also obviously perform better. I, I will say that you know not only the extra work will sometimes make you a little bit hungry. That's the argument for metabolic flexibility that that Mike obviously talks about, and he can answer that piece. Um, but usually you know you can kind of head that off you know the very next day when you're trying to recover from those squats deadlifts are pretty good the problem with deadlifts i think for a lot of people is that you know the tax on the cns we had chad wesley smith on um and he talked about that a lot and i think that that is true i can get in a lot more volume with squats than i can with deadlifts um, of course, I could do like weak deadlifts, you know, and then get in a lot of volume that way. But I I don't really think that's the way deadlifts are supposed to work, you know, at least not the way that I train them. And so, you know, if I'm going to get in volume on deadlift, it's going to be kind of accessory work like abs and things of that nature. And that will help help loading. Most of my calories tend to be really similar um, on the days I'm doing resistance training now something like like upper body that's probably a day where I would not get too aggressive on calories but I also probably wouldn't be too crazy with you know kind of the cardio so for instance let's say that your calorie burn was 2500 and you ate close to 2500 I would say with squats your calorie burn might be 3000 right and so, so you can adjust for that, but you're right. You're working smaller muscles. I do a lot of rucks, hiking. I haven't been running that much um, just because rucks have been a really good, you know, thing for me. Um, 
when I'm rucking, I tend to use those as a bit of a deficit day, just from sort of a recomp standpoint. So there are days where I'll ruck and I'll burn 4,000 calories and I might only eat 2,500 calories or might even 2,200 calories. It just depends on, you know, um, how I'm feeling. But those are good days to access stored bodily fat. And one of the big advantages to stored bodily fat is that, you know, most of your fat is going to leave through respiration. And so if you have some level of cardio, not to mention, you know, recovery rates and stuff like that, resting heart rate, all those things tend to be favorable. Um, but usually I will not eat, you know, an extreme amount of food on my cardio days. Now, some people might build huge depth, you know, huge burns and they might need that, you know, um, I would say, you know, younger people can probably get away with that a little bit more than I can. But, I, you know, I haven't seen where there's instances. Uh, OK, so uh, before we go to Mike, if I was running, I'd be much closer um, to my burn. But since I'm really just hiking, you know, the metabolic demand isn't that high. Um, talk a little bit about kind of obviously I covered a lot of that ground, but but give us the science on it. Give us the straight skinny, Mike. Yeah. Um, so I'm actually a pretty big fan of volume just in general. So for people who are new, volume is just weight times sets times reps. And what's pretty cool about that is that your bigger, more compound exercises, and she's absolutely correct, are working more muscle fiber. There's maybe a longer time under tension. It's a little bit debatable in the research, but you're definitely doing, in essence, a lot more work. So I'm a big fan of just tracking the amount of volume I do. I have a separate spreadsheet program that keeps track of all of it. And if you try to match your carbohydrates to around your volume, you know, it's going to be different for each person but you're going to get relatively close and it'll take care of the uh, differences in body parts and stuff you're doing. Right. So for example, if you're doing just old school bill star five by five on deadlifts compared to maxing out on preacher curls, right? I mean, there's going to be a huge difference in volume there automatically independent of the exercise, right? Cause the deadlift is going to allow you, to lift a lot more weight, to do a lot more work than just the exercise of a preacher curl in and of itself. So if you're just looking at volume in general, I'm a big fan of trying to maximize that. And what you find is that, you know, doing some strength work is obviously good, but in terms of like you're talking about squat versus deadlift, um, if you look at squat, well, I think it's a you know great exercise. It's been used a lot. I think it's good. Uh, for me personally, I'm a little bit more fan of the deadlift but I do usually modify that to like a farmer's bar deadlift or a trap bar deadlift or a block pull, uh, something like that. Just there isn't too many people that can pull heavy every day from the floor. But I found that if you're real relative experience, you know, a trap bar, or farmer's bar, different implements, I think um, can work pretty good in that department. And that allows you to get uh, more variety, which doesn't allow your joints to be beat up quite as much. And then you can still get a fair amount of, of volume in at the same time too. Yeah, I mean, I I could not. I, I know that 
I might be a little bit different than other people, but deadlifts don't beat me up the way that squats might, you know. And I, I, I think it is sort of interesting. I know that we've talked about this before, but single-legged stuff, you know, tends to be pretty good there as well. Bulgarian squats, you know, lunges, you know. The, the problem with those things, unweighted, is that bang for buck, you know, I mean, that you just have to get in a lot more volume. Um, and so, yeah. you know. That's a big fan of kettlebells, too. Kettlebell swings, kettlebell snatches, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. And um, even for more conditioning, kind of strong men stuff, if you're more experienced, you know, just lots of sled work. You know, even people can do rope stuff, car pushes. It's pretty hard to screw up the form on it, too. And the nice part is a lot of it is like car pushes and sled work is concentric only. So you're not really getting a lot of the, the micro tears in the muscle. You don't feel quite as sore. Um, so it tends to allow itself to do a little bit more volume without beating the piss out of yourself too. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, for me, I think a lot, you know, I did hills. Uh, I've been mixing in actually some, some sprint work just because I'm preparing for this competition that nice. I'm leaving for tomorrow. So, you know, when I, you know, deadlift, um, you know, I, I'll do airdyne sprints. Um, I'm pointing to it like people can see it. it's, <laughs> it's right there. Um, and then on a squat day, I'll do hill sprints. I did hill sprints twice last week, you know, kind of prepping for this competition. But on my ruck days, those are not workout days, you know. Um, yeah. it, it's just a, you know, it's just a way to kind of, get a decent burn and i think as you're sort of reversing out because i i don't think i'm out of the woods yet you know um I, I think i probably won't be out of the woods for you know six to eight weeks but i think that the way that most people come out of a deficit cycle is they want to eat all the foods that they they didn't eat before well yeah i got bad news for you guys i had pizza every single friday you know, I had, in fact, Mike and I, you know, went to the same place, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, I mean, I had things that I enjoyed because I was able to fit those into my plan, you know. So when I came out of, you know, my deficit cycle, you know, I started at probably I was eating I, was, I think I only ate Chipotle like three times during my deficit cycle. And I know you could fit Chipotle in, but, you know, I was just finding a much better groove with the things that I was eating and getting a specific result. So there was no, you know, like I said, you know, if you find a groove, just stick with it. Yeah. But people want to get back to eating normal so quickly that it actually un you know it it undoes undoes undone um but it takes away all the progress that they've made right and that seems to be the more extreme the deficit extreme the approach the faster yeah. they want to go back to normal again yeah and 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 they net out like i said either yeah. like, either, burp, the, burp. either the same or worse you know yeah um uh, probably the last thing that I would like to talk about is if there's any science towards 
Okay, so you talked about refeeds the other day, and I could not agree with you more. I feel like refeeds, you know, and the people that are proponents of refeeds, you know, are really, you know, one, why are they asking you to refeed? Because they're crushing everything, <laughs> you know. I mean, everything downregulates when you are so super low as it relates to calories. So now... You've got to try and shock the system, right, by refeeding. Um, but with refeeds out of the equation, one of the things that I showed during my PFFL, and I'd be interested to see if there's you know anything that you've seen. What I showed every single time was, is I would go for my deficit, I would get one pound, and usually, you know, I would stay right around there, or maybe get to a pound and a half, and then, you know, I would have date night, and that was my wave plus night. It wasn't like, you know, ape shit refeed night. <laughs> it was, you know, have a reasonable date with my wife with some pizza and, you know, um some level of dessert now the dessert changed as i went through my deficit cycle because of course as your body is down regulating you've got to adjust to that and that's sort of how we set up these deficit cycles but talk to me a little about that bit about that spike up because i genuinely believe you know for me and I don't know if it was just mental, and, and I think it is for a lot of people, that they can have foods that they enjoy. And it's almost the process of the scale going up that actually does allow the scale to go down. Mm -hmm. Thoughts related to that? Yeah, so this is something I've noticed in pretty much almost every piece of data I've ever seen on someone who's done successful fat loss. And if you look at the actual data, you see exactly that. You see it's never a straight linear line, right? It never looks like this, right? It goes up, down, up, down. Which is going to go over real well on the podcast. <laughs> That's, yeah, I know. I'm trying to show linear here. But yeah, yeah. Um, there's never just this linear ski slope straight down to your end result. There's always, you know, little plateaus and little ups and downs. And my research was actually looking at fine scale variability in physiologic systems. I hope I didn't lose everybody there. <laughs> but in essence, what it means is that the body is very good at having this really small control kind of up or down. And the people I've seen anecdotally who are just utterly quote unquote stuck in their weight loss. They literally, I'll say, okay, have you been, you know, getting on the scale every day, which is another debate for another time, but they'll say yes. And I'll look at their data and it's literally plus or minus a half a pound for weeks on that. And pretty much every single case where they've been just utterly stuck, there's no fluctuation in their weight. And it, it freaks them out sometimes that what I've done with those people is trying to get their weight to go up initially. Now, I know that their goal was fat loss, but my whole goal is that I want to get some variability back to them. I want it to get closer to normal, quote unquote, and then we'll worry about going back down again. And a lot of times, if you look at the data, what you'll see is it'll go up just a little bit, and then usually drops right after that. 
Now, could that be some regulation, leptin, insulin, maybe performance is better because you ate more glycogen? Who knows? It's not really that well understood, but uh, it's something that I have seen in pretty much all of the data. And you can apply that same thing to heart rate, which you end up with heart rate variability. Uh, one of the research areas I did is applying that to respiratory exchange ratio. So this number that tells you the percentage of fat to the percentage of carbohydrates that you're burning on a metabolic cart. Is that a marker for metabolic flexibility? That was one of the questions I was trying to answer. Um, you can look at gait. You can look at sway. You can look at pretty much every system that we know in the body so far. And we see these fine scale variations both up and down. So I think that once we get rid of that entirely, you're going to run into a whole host of problems. Yeah, I think when we talk about body dysfunction as it relates to undereating and sleep goes down and, and, and your immune system starts to get compromised and you know now all of a sudden you're more susceptible to a cold and all these negative yep. things... Thyroid function is known to go down when you're um, consistently in a deficit. It seems to me that that little spike up, you know, is sort of sending the body like a signal like, hey, guys, we're still doing things, you know. <laughs> and oftentimes, if you can surround that around a high volume day, you know, that ends to be a plus. I tend to like my high volume day to be the next day. Um, that way, you know, I'm kind of full of energy, you know, I can go into that workout the next day. And then, you know, I just think that, you know, I, I think there is one thing that I should mention in that because I think it's really super important. If you're going down and you've lost your water weight, you know, and let's say that that was three pounds and it's day seven and you're still seeing a, a trend down don't do what i'm saying just keep go with the groove remember yeah. if you're in a groove stick with that groove but what and and this i think relates a little bit to alan aragon's paper because we're going to be having alan on you know real soon here mm -hmm. and one of the topics that alan is a is a big fan of is the idea of plateaus because when we talk about fat loss, you know, yes. we're really talking about two simplistic ideas. You know, are you doing enough or are you eating too much, right? And what Alan is saying is, is that plateaus are a sign to you that you've got to make a move one way or the other. You know, when I went through my deficit, my calorie burn average going into my PFFL was 2,700. In my PFFL, I made sure it was over 3,000 every single day. Why did I do that? Because of Alan Aragon's paper, right? What Alan was saying there is you've got two factors. Everyone focuses on the starvation factor, but they don't focus on what Anita did, where they actually up their window. And so what I did was I said, I don't want to leave any stone unturned. So for the next 60 days, I'm going to burn 3,000 calories or more every single day. And I know that I was previously burning 2,700 calories. And I'm going to see if I can create enough of a deficit 
to lose X amount of pounds. And sure enough, I ended up losing 10 pounds as a process. People just don't want to experiment on the top end, right? And I think they're really sort of missing the boat and they don't want to see the scale go up. And I really believe that, you know, even if it was just mental, even if that was the only thing you got from it, it'd be good. But mm -hmm. if your relationship with the scale is always based on the scale going down, you know, it's like, you know, Mike's relationship with his wife. If it was based on Mike being cheery and happy all the time, you know, that wouldn't happen, right? I mean, the, the, that's how relationships work. Your relationship with the scale needs to be variable. It can't be based on one thing, you know. Um, maybe not yeah, the best example. Providing data, it's right. You know, you're the person that's attaching all this emotional stuff to and it. And the scale doesn't, you know, swear at you in expletives in the morning. Yeah, it, it just tells you the number. <laughs> yeah, they're the one. They, they're just putting an expectation on. If you can lose the expectation, right. or if you can actually be okay and realize that the scale spiking up is potentially going to be a good thing for you. I think your relationship with the scale will change. The The last thing before we shut it down, I want to say about the scale or body fat testing or measurements around your waist or whatever is view all of these things as an individual package. You know, also, how do you feel? Are you eating with enough energy? Are you sleeping? You know, we tend to focus on kind of the macro thing in terms of, you know, proteins, fats, and carbohydrates, meaning macronutrients. Every time we do one of these, like if Mike would have asked me when we did the first one where we did the case studies for the wave method, um, you know how much percentage macros matter? I would have probably said 30%. Some people say 60 to 70%. I'm down to five. Okay, because because the more I talk to people on a daily basis, the more I realize that it's sleep and priorities that tend to be discounted because we're putting the cart before the horse, you know, and the more disciplined you can be as it relates, you know, the the thing that kind of always gets to me when we talk about the certification is how dismissive everyone seems to be towards work capacity, you know, especially in a group where you're selling work capacity. I mean, we're talking mostly to personal trainers, but, you know, how can we get people to work out as much as possible and starve them? You can't. Yeah. That's the answer. <laughs> That's the answer is you can't. But you can show them a way that's a little bit more enlightened than just do as much as possible and eat as little as possible. And, you know, I mean, it's fairly obvious that's not working, you know? And so we've seen a lot of success. Our clients are obviously seeing a lot of success. You see all the, the success stories on the internet from us. Um, and I, I just feel like I know that it gets to be difficult at times to follow that plan. 
but and maybe be be an advocate for that plan because if I was a trainer and someone walked in my door and said I have 30 pounds to lose you know my first instinct might be okay let's lose 30 pounds but I was on a call today and I was talking to an athlete and I asked her what she thought you know, she needed to get to, and she told me her body fat percentage, you know, and she told me her weight, and she said she thought she needed to lose 20 pounds. I said, well, where do you want to get to as it relates to body fat percentage? And she mentioned like 4 to 5% lower. I said, for you, you know, 4 to 5% lower is anywhere from 5 to 7.5 pounds. So you would only need to lose 5 to 7.5 pounds Assuming that, of course, it ended up being, you know, all fat. But it's certainly far different from the 20 pounds that she thought. So let's say that she set up a scenario where she was trying to lose 20 pounds, but she only lost seven and a half pounds, right? Seven and a half pounds was actually what her goal was. But she didn't know it because she thought she wanted to be at 20 pounds. So when a client comes in and says to you, I need to lose 30 pounds based on what? Right? Yeah. And and that's the advantage of having the math people on your side. Right? When you have more data, more specifics, it gives you a better path. And what's nice about it is that it allows you to break down goals in chunks. And that's where whether you're a gym owner, whether you're a client, you know, I think that the good majority of people, when you're able to explain things to them in a reasonable way, they'll listen. Otherwise, they're going to default to a detox and starving as much as possible. Right? <laughs> so we have to be advocates for our system. We have to be advocates. You know, I don't know why you would be a gym owner and, and you know, not make a case for more work capacity. I, you know, that's what you're selling that you can increase work capacity, you know? Um, and then hopefully we can take a gradual approach for some level of sustained fat loss over time. Anything you want to end on there, Mike, or we just shut it down on that good note? No, I agree with that. The only thing I would add is, um, I got an email from a client today who said something very similar that she's finally now doing much more exercise than she ever has. And the big key is that she's weight stable, her fat loss is stayed, feels great. And she also said that she's no longer using exercise as punishment. So it's now more of a lifestyle and something that she enjoys. And she's basically gotten out of that whole downward spiral of, oh, I ate too much, I gotta go punish myself with exercise and that right. type of thing. So Yeah. And I, I yeah, I and I think a lot of the people that come into a gym and say I need to lose thirty pounds. I think in six months they're going to be out of your gym, you know, yeah. because, you know, they're, you know, they might have an unsustainable goal. And, and the more you can get it down to specifics and, and break it down to kind of a patient approach, the, the better chance, you know, from a sustainable standpoint that the client. Well, you know what I mean. All right, guys. I appreciate everybody being here. We're, I'm obviously stuttering, so it's gone too long. So I appreciate everybody being here, and I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.